Today we're going to do something a little bit different. Um, I'm going to tell you the story of how I started a media network, ruined my life, and eventually became a published author. Uh, ben, you're actually in some of this, but it's I'm all fresh. From, and... I'm there from like day two. From day I two. I think you're literally there on day one. <laughs> But Daniel, this is all going to be fresh for you, hopefully. So I've, I've got uh, an expert and then someone with fresh eyes. So hopefully you can both like judge me from different angles. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> um, shame me from different directions. A few notes before we get started. I have changed a few names for privacy reasons for anyone who isn't a public figure. Um, what I might do, Ben, for your reference is I'll just do a quick sniff of this. Give me the name reference. Yeah, just so that you know who the fuck I'm talking about. And I can use the names as well, yeah. Yeah. Did that one I come through like, okay, Ben? I do like these names, yeah. Yeah. Carl. 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 All right, so before we get into much of this, um, a bit of a preface. So I'm the author of Maynard Trigg uh, and the previous creative director of Digital and Creative Media Works. I've had a complicated, busy career in a very short amount of time. I'm now the chief editor of Zero Indent. I've worked in software, HR, communications, media criticism, and journalism. If you don't know who I am, then hopefully this will be an interesting deep dive into the person I used to be. And if you do know who I am, maybe this will inform a bit about how we got here. Uh, now, <laughs> the foundation of my creative career currently is fa uh, founded on what I like to think of as a single premise, which is that I know very, very little of anything. And my goal is always to learn from people who are better. When I um, first started, this wasn't really the case. So this would be the first part of a three-part series. Um, the next two parts will delve into the first two Maynard Trick books. So the first one um, will be an exploration of book one, and we'll do sort of like a behind-the-scenes director's commentary, and we'll break down the story like chunk by chunk. Uh, and then part two will be a spoiler cast for book two, where we'll do the same thing but for the second book, um, which means, yes, Ben, I'll be sending you a copy. Yes. Finally, <laughs> so so long. Dead king. Um, so this episode is part one, incredibly loud and extremely awful. You know, I often ask myself such questions at times like these. I may be an overpaid producer, but I hope you will take my meaning with you. Do you understand this, Frank? Do you? In 2013, I was 18 years old. Around December, me and my friends rented a holiday house by the beach in Caloundra. We did this because the previous year we'd done something similar for schoolies, Australia's equivalent of spring break at the end of high school. We had a relaxing time and so thought it was wise to repeat it. Ben already knows where this is going. <laughs> uh, I stayed on the top floor of the building with my girlfriend at the time, while the rest of my friends stayed in various rooms throughout the massive house. One of our friends, Mel, had planned to attend the holiday with her partner at the time, but they were going through uh, a rocky period, so she ended up coming alone. As a result, Mel and I bonded uh, because we'd been friends for a very, very long time, weirdly longer than Ben, who's the person I've known the longest, so it's weird <laughs> to think about. Um, I'd comfortably call her my oldest friend, but as things happen, we've drifted apart in the years since. Anyway, Mel and I attended the same primary school. My mother was a single parent for that period of my life and a full-time teacher, so my brother and I spent an awful lot of time at before and after school care. Is that like a concept you have in America, Danielle? Like the... 
Yeah, we have it. Um, it depends on where you are, what they call it. Where I grew up, they called it base. Base. Uh, I, I don't actually know why. Before, <laughs> um, before I've never... after school. Edu- yeah. Edu- education. Yeah. Education. Yeah. 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 That sounds right. <laughs> here, it yeah, the, it. here it was the equivalent of like they would just pay a bunch of uni students minimum wage to keep your kids alive for the hours before and after school. It was more or less. Yeah, and even then it was a bit. It was a bit hit and miss. Yeah, it really was. Oh my god. We were allowed to watch morning cartoons on the TV most mornings for exactly thirty-five minutes until it was time for outdoor <laughs> activities. Um, but it was really it's, fucked because the exact uh, window of time when the TV was on meant we always saw like the last 15 minutes of something and then the first 20 minutes of Pokemon. Like we, we never saw a full show for that whole like right. four years when I was at that school. And so it, you only got two out of the three who's that, who's that Pokemon. Yeah, it was very oh. episode. You didn't get all of them. Yeah. No. It also meant that I had a really skewed perception of what cut, like Saturday morning TV was. Because I just assumed it was that period of time when they show cartoons. I didn't realize there was like an hour block before and an hour block after of other cartoons. <laughs> um, now, Mel and I attended the same school, uh, and though she didn't attend the daycare, uh, she watched the same cartoons in the morning at home. Uh, and on this holiday, those many years later, we were reminiscing about this stuff. It's kind of what you do because you have nothing else to talk about when you're that age because you have no real interests yet. In part because we were talking about it because it felt like we were moving into adulthood, leaving that kind of innocence behind, I suppose. And in part because Mel was struggling with her relationship and reflecting on the past is a helpful way to understand where you're going. But mostly we were talking about it because we realized how much of the shows we had both retained, just how many of the details. We both had this innate, intricate recollection of Pokemon and the stories, the world and the ideas contained within, to the point where it was kind of not really funny. Like, it was quite weird how much we remembered. (laughs) So one afternoon on the holiday, we were sitting on the couch, drinks in hand, and watching old Pokemon episodes on the TV. We were joking and speculating. Eventually, Mel uttered a phrase that would change my life forever. (laughs) What if Pokemon were real, though? How would that work? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Oh, fuck. Do you remember that afternoon, Ben? I think you guys were out doing something. Uh yeah, I think we were out, yeah, maybe y'all doing went, other things. But... Y'all went play golf or something like that? You did You did some activity oh, or something. I don't know if we... We didn't... It, was, it wasn't golf. It was, if anything, mini golf. Um, right. But I don't I don't know if we ended up actually going to mini golf. I think we just kind of fucked around okay. in, like, some shopping center or something. Right. The thrills of being a young person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now, this thought spiraled across the afternoon. And as we got progressively more drunk, we progressively spitballed more ideas. How would the education system have been shaped? How would everyday life be altered? What about the justice system? How would that look? I very drunkenly wrote a note in my phone about the idea we landed on. I'm going to read you an excerpt of that note now. This was really fucking hard. to. F- I had to go and get, get my old iPhone 4. Good lord, plug, yeah. Find a cable that plugged into it. Find a computer that it would actually like register with to get this shit off there. So this was like quite oh a, God. this was quite a, a journey. Um, so stop me if any of these sound like complete nonsense because, um, yeah, it's pretty much where I was at. Uh, so this is all <laughs> take this all in quotes until um, I get to the next section. But I'm just going to read you out a few of the dot points, a few of the choice, um, the choice uh, elements I was able to recover from that that note in my phone. The first note is. Bureau of Investigators who specialize in Pokemon-related crime. Uh, which, yeah, good, solid start. Yeah, wonder where that went. Yeah, wonder where that went. I've heard of that before. 
Then the follow-up thought to that, which is great, is perhaps it's under wraps, a secret component of the Pokemon League. And then in brackets, which, because, like, as a thought, like, okay, there's, like, some kind of a secret, like, a crime investigative wing that obviously would need to be legislated so how the fuck would it be secret but then i i'm so i'm thinking i'm so clever i put in brackets after that who is owned by someone question mark like i'm already like ooh conspiracy like it's um and then it just gets weirder so pokemon have to be registered through the subway of pokedex net and there are certain pokemon that are illegal so things that specialize in hypnosis arson flooding psychic manipulation or destructive weather so again not unreasonable ideas but already you can see where this is going you're really just like digging deep digging to just deep. chuck right. as much intrigue as possible into this well like force intrigue into it yeah yeah um so story focuses on hendrix a private investigator contracted by the bureau need it quote in brackets need a name for it so i still don't know what i'm going to call this like bureau uh to assist in more serious matters uh <laughs> jesus um hmm. should resemble the meta of a few cities in Johto to decide on which he lives and if any resemble Brisbane or Chicago. Why are those the two <laughs> options? You're like Brisbane. Brisbane where I live and Chicago. Chicago. You know how Chicago. similar they are? <laughs> That's such a weird choice as well. Uh, it's bizarre. It's like... Yeah. Uh, and then it goes on to... Uh, I mean, the, the real pitch here is Hendrix is one of the only Pokemon private investigators as Pokemon have almost... Uh, are almost uh, widely a government asset so they're not a myth per se but they're not exactly mainstream um so being a pokemon pi is super niche and doesn't really earn him much money so the idea that like this would eventually become like a centralized uh publicly owned like asset i guess which is the exact opposite way the world has gone because i didn't realize that like fascism was still a thing but as a concept it's not bad the idea that like the government would try and legislate how Pokemon can be owned and used and stuff like that. Um, but again, who was asking for this shit? <laughs> uh, okay. Now I don't have to tell you this train of thought did not end well for me. I went away from that holiday and rather than let this die on the couch, I wrote a full length Pokemon fan fiction novel centered on a noir detective. I've spoken about this a little before, and if you're really interested, you should check out our other podcast, That Time I Wrote a Fan Fiction, on the network where me and Aaron read through every chapter of the book with special guests and make fun of it. So if you want to find out, it's out there. Uh, it should be released by the time it this is, goes up. It is atrocious. It's really rough. It is not great. I am so great. excited. Yeah. It's going to be rough. Uh, Ben's been on an episode. I'm sure I'll get Danielle on at some point. Um, it's the series is just me bringing on very talented people to make fun of me. It's great. Um, now, what followed this was a series of very odd decisions. Uh, at the time, I decided I wanted to publish this novel. I had the idea in my head that the concept was like genuinely revolutionary, that this project would change the way people thought about fan fiction. Um, to the point where I, I guess the lie that I had told myself is that I wasn't writing fan fiction. I was like, reshaping the way that we understood literature <laughs> which how old you were you were what uh, 19, 19 at this point yeah oh um, just massive hubris oh we're gonna get to that <laughs> don't worry about that um we're gonna talk a little bit about the kind of young person i was but just as by way of a spoiler i didn't change the face of literature just pre just flagging that for you guys right out <laughs> no, the, right just... out the gate this doesn't end with me becoming like a stephen king or something <laughs> um now, at this time, I realized that the book getting published itself was pretty unlikely. Pokemon is obviously copyrighted. Uh, so even mm. though it was satirical, it would have been an enormous legal risk to publish this in general. 
Uh, and the chances of me having like the resources to defend such a claim were pretty low. Like I didn't have any money. The, but looking back on it, I'm like, it, it probably, it does fall into value. So it just doesn't necessarily mean that they wouldn't have pursued it because they're quite a litigious company. Um, I mean, Ben, you can probably speak to like the amount of shit they pull online where they just, they DMCA oh, take I mean, down all, just anything. Was, like no chance it would have been published no. like remotely. Yeah. Uh, and so rather than internalize this very valuable lesson for a young person, I doubled down. <laughs> I assembled a team of very smart and very creative people to turn this very bad novel into a multimedia podcast production. I solicited local talented artist Carl to draw amazing images of key scenes. I enlisted Ben to narrate the audiobook. I recruited my girlfriend at the time to write expanded universe content. I was, you... I was I was the worst the least, choice. The least reliable operator, too. Dude, that also, was just you. For a noir story, you just... It's what was I thinking? I mean, it's, it, was, it was just bad. Like, I remember doing the... Like, recording the lines for it. And it's just... It was just so painful. Yeah. Does this still I mean, exist? The, oh, we'll get to uh, that. Yeah. The audio? Yeah. Somewhere, probably. Uh, I've, it's definitely somewhere. I think I've dug around to try to find it. It must be on um, a Dropbox of mine somewhere. It's definitely on a Dropbox somewhere. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't think I have the raw files. Mm, I'm not sure. Oh, it, would be on, it would be on my old, my old MacBook, probably, actually. I mean, the, so the original idea had a lot of issues with it, just to list a few. Um, like, first, like, stories have to necessitate their own existence. They have to feel, like, in their own space. They have to feel needed in some way. Like, they have to feel like a story that needs to be told. And that, just as a concept, like, it didn't have that quality. Alongside some oddly sexist stuff, questionable structure and just a general lack of control. I wasn't really well trained at that point, uh, but I pulled ahead regardless. Through many sluggish stops and starts, we failed to ever really get the project past about chapter five in whatever format we were trying to create it in, whether that was uh, publishing it as a podcast or trying to put it out as like a web series, whatever. Uh, instead, I started a podcast alongside hoping to gain enough traction to garner interest in the project and then eventually launch it. Uh, this podcast became Art for Artists over a long period of time, um, a valuable piece of art in its own right. However, at the time, the fan fiction continued to just be a very bad idea. Now, around this period in my life, I was eager to write something original on the side. This is something I haven't really talked about publicly before, so I'm going to try and work through it. When I was approaching this script, it wasn't like the Druckmann one where I was able to be like, okay, this is, this is hard to verify. I'm just going to put the caveat that like, this is an unverified fact. It doesn't come from two independent sources or the source that it does come from, I don't necessarily uh, trust. This is difficult because it's anecdotes about my life that I have some evidence for where I can go through Dropbox files and be like, okay, this did happen at that time. But other stuff is a combination of like me trying to remember stuff when I was like going through a period in my life where I was just drinking all the fucking time. So I don't remember much of it very well. Plus I was really young and I was like remembering it through this biased lens at the time. Um, and then have like, going back to it, have realized that at the time I was, I was mythologizing that period of my life as well. Um, so a lot of this, like to what extent I can claim that it's true, it's, it's the stuff I could remember or find. So Ben, if something doesn't line up, jump in and, and let me know and we can try and puzzle through it. That's my disclaimer. So while running the kitchen at Sizzler, I started working on a piece between shifts. I wrote on my MacBook Air in a booth in section one. The story started from a very, very simple idea. The simple idea was about uh, this old kind of pirate 
uh, character uh, going to a junkyard full of like derelict um, skyships and finding one, uh, this, this remnant of a skyship from like legend that no one believed existed. Uh, now, before we get into some of this stuff, I wanted to detail a bit about who I was at the time. Not to be self-flagellating, but I think it's of note to be reflexive given how often on this show I have and will continue to call out people for being shitty. So I'm always conscious. It's why I drop in anecdotes about dumb stuff I've done. It's why whenever I talk about someone who like, has like, maybe sexist views or whatever, I'll refer to a point in time when I had sexist views. I like to be reflexive in that way, but um, this isn't going to paint a pretty picture. So still like, still like me afterwards, guys. <laughs> this was around 2014 or so, the height of a time when I was struggling with a lot of issues around my identity. I had a really strange childhood that matriculated into an even weirder adolescence. I was deeply fundamentally insecure, but outwardly incredibly confident. I was already struggling with substance abuse at 18 and trying to square away the trauma of my parents' divorce with the continual sensation that I was never enough in comparison to my brothers. I had this anger, this deep, impotent rage in my bones that made me into this judgmental, sanctimonious asshole whenever I was pricked. Uh, here's a Tumblr post from 2011 that I think illustrates this point quite well. Good um, lord. Yeah, I had to <laughs> do a lot of, of navel-gazing for this one. I didn't like what was, <laughs> what was in the mirror. Um, so, yeah, Danielle, for, for, for your reference, and I suppose for, for listeners who haven't seen the video that I made on the Pokemon fanfiction, I used to run this really toxic Tumblr blog. Um, and I mentioned this in our Druckman episode, but I did, I did some really offensive shit, like ranked the hottest girls at school. Like, it was just really bad. Um, very sexist and shitty. Um, so here's, here's a post from that blog in 2011. Quote, and again, I, I can't do the tone of voice anymore because I'm not that person, but read this with a level of like, I, I'm pretty sure I'm better than everyone. That's how this comes across or how, how it should be received. Quote, we are utterly ridiculous. It really bugs me as a whole that we're a bunch of hypocritical shitheads. The majority... Fucking hell. The majority, <laughs> oh, fuck. Pub the majority of... Oh, it's man, it's rough, eh? It's like, oh, okay. Uh, the majority of teenagers these days, these days feel the need to share their every thought on Facebook, document everything in public view, and decide that those who lead private lives are uncool. Now, I have no problem being... <laughs> I have no... <laughs> I have no problem being called uncool because I play video games, love Batman and Doctor Who. I have no problem with that. <laughs> Fuck me. What I don't tolerate is when other people... Oh, what I don't tolerate is when other people are put down because they lead private lives, which they don't document on Twitter or Facebook. It's pretty fucked up that people think it's appropriate to insult, bully or harass each other online. That's in caps online because of something someone else said online. That's just fucked. They complain about people not posting their feelings and every single freaking thought and then complain when someone says something they disagree with. I think our generation has forgotten that the Internet isn't written in pencil. It's written in ink. Once you posted something on Facebook or Twitter or Tumblr, it's there forever. And I just think people forget that sometimes. I know I do. Yeah, we fucking know that. This thing's still out there. <laughs> <sighs> uh, what? Hang on. Anyway, I haven't read. It's just I was like, wow, that's way too sexist. Um, and just like offensive. Anyway, it's about at the time, which I, I've. I've uh, why am I talking about that? <laughs> At the time, I was really defensive of the fact that I had a girlfriend. Um, and one of the things that I would do is, like, regardless of the argument, 
try and use it as a way to bring up the fact that I had a girlfriend. <laughs> oh, dude. That's... Yeah. Oh, man. It was rough. Um, what, a, what a classic Gamer Boy move. It was a real neckbeard move. Um, <laughs> this, this post ends with, anyway, I haven't ranted in a while because my life has been great, so have fun Eastering or holidaying whilst eating chocolate if you're not into the Jesus thing. End quote. <sighs> Yeah, it was, it was bad out there, guys. It was bad out there for me, okay? Um, I just had awful, awful opinions about the world and women. It was not good. Uh, now, this weird thing happened around this time for the next three years where a lot of people from my school and social life followed my blog. Uh, I can only attribute this to my awful takes, but also my articulation. Even in that post, you get the sense that I was writing with an eloquence that wasn't necessarily approachable for most people that age. I had the ability to speak my mind clearly and vividly, when most people were struggling to maintain the same identity in consecutive fortnights. I had also acquired a few quasi-stalkers in my anonymous messages. This was my first real taste of fame, I guess. Or at least attention that was because of the things I was saying, uh, regardless of the quality of what I was saying. Now, back to the idea I had for that other story. Sometime in 2013, we'd planned to play a game of Dungeons & Dragons homebrew where we served aboard a Sky Pirate ship. We went on many adventures in a strange steampunk D&D world. Its similarities to my story now are fleeting, but at the time it had some of the basic concepts I would eventually explore. Sky pirates, some form of eldritch pursuit, and that was kind of it. Do you remember that game, Ben? Yeah. yeah. I, it was, I don't think it actually... It, it kind of started as like high fantasy, but just like there are sky ships. Mm -hmm. But it, I think my character died and you were like oh, okay we'll just like we'll reintroduce you at some point and i got reintroduced as like a captain of this really shitty skyship that's right that would fly purely based on like will alone like it sh it was one of those things where it's like this plane shouldn't should fly, fly yeah but just because the pack the captain thinks it should fly it flies it was um, uh basically firefly <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah and it just completely jumped the shark after that and just became firefly yeah. um yeah and from that point it was just like it started off just like oh we're playing D, &D and then we'd just refer it to it refer to it as oh we're playing sky pirates yeah that's it's right just, it's completely nice. just like flipped the needle it's just like yeah it's just sky pirates it's now. just sky yeah if, if we just own it that's fine um i i always wonder like how many fucking fantasy novels started as D, &D games it's got to be a lot oh i imagine like a lot yeah, yeah. Uh, now, regardless um, of, of how directly literal those ideas were to what I ended up writing, the germs were there for the concepts, like the idea of skyships, the idea of scarcity, the theme of like unending pursuit. Um, I had many discussions with a friend in French class. Uh, I was a very poor French student. These weren't conversations in <laughs> French, by the way, um, about the mechanics of the world, um, about where the water might come from on these great skyships uh, in these sky cities where these people live, like how the world shaped itself, what happened in the history. And it was one of those things where I just kept taking notes and over time, like I kept writing ideas. I wouldn't say I was writing a story. I was just like writing snippets of prose. Um, the result was over the next two years, I had a 2 million word manuscript. Um, I wouldn't necessarily call it a story so much as just a lot of words. Like there wasn't necessarily a through line. Um, yeah, it was a, it was a weird beast. Um, here's a quick snippet by way of a tone setter, just to give you an idea of what this looked like. And Dan Danielle, maybe mentally you can compare this to how Maynard triggers now. Um, <laughs> because it was a very different, like, it's just really fundamentally different. Um, 
Also, I was a much shittier writer, so there's also that. Uh, quote, Maynard was determined to stay awake, but as soon as he put his head on the pillow, he was fast asleep. He dreamed violently. He started walking through an empty field. Nothing in sight, waving hillocks of dust and rusted memories. A gust carried the grit across his vision. It was in his eyes. It cut against his skin and filled his pores. He hated sand. <laughs> no! Did you actually unironically no! write that? Fuck. Did you seriously? Was this before, like, the prequel memes kind of resurgence? Yeah, it was. Wow, uh. you predated <laughs> I hate sand jokes. I didn't read in... this full extract before I grabbed it from the document for this script. I just picked, <laughs> like, a random section. You just said... Wow. Um... Boy, okay. Um, <laughs> good lord. Good grief, yeah. Uh, his footsteps were blown away even as his boot heels lifted off the ground. When he blinked, he found he was standing on a ship. The wind tossed his hair about his brow, flooded his coat, and made him feel alive. He snapped awake, sitting up in bed. End quote. So it's not objectively awful, um, but it's doing something that I hate doing in my storytelling now, where it's sort of it's like it's all provocating where it's telling you it's telling you how he's thinking and what he's feeling and and how things are affecting instead of showing and letting that stuff be subtext it's just like a very different type of storytelling than the stuff i'm interested in um it's like also, dream sequences in like dc movies yeah just like, it has that, with a subtlety yeah. just like smacks you across the face and you're like oh good right. god but then like <laughs> but like it's like metaphor whiplash but it like it thinks it's being subtle yeah <laughs> yeah it's literally hashtag d like that's how it, it's like yeah. it's just like oh you yeah you can't picture this in your head because it's just so subversive because it's, it's just so like because right. it's just like it's so intricate bro yeah no let me picture this it's like it's like an apocalypse right but batman's in a trench coat now let me stop you <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna look fucking sick first of all it's gonna be your favorite part of the movie and you're never gonna fully understand why oh, <laughs> Sorry, that was a bit of a drive-by for Zack Snyder. Um, <laughs> if you're listening to this, Zack, I'm sorry. You just, I don't think you should be gainfully employed to make films, that's all. Um, now, the story, was far more <laughs> the story was far more confused tonally uh, and was attempting to be mature without really understanding what that meant. So exactly what Ben said. Uh, while I was writing this, I was also writing a very weird sequel. So this is where the kind of... This is... I'm just taking a brief aside to take us a little bit down the origins of Maynard before we get back to the fan fiction. I promise they're looping back together. Uh, so while I was writing this two million word piece, I was also writing a very bizarre sequel. The sequel was set 20 years later than the original story on a far out skyport, uh, focusing on the protagonist Martha and a retired Maynard. In my head, I was attempting to recreate Patrick Rothfuss's King Killer Chronicles, but in practice, I just forged an odd sky pirate meets zombies action story that had a lot of tonal dissonance. Now, fast forwarding a little bit, in 2015, I made contact with an agent. I won't say who now, but they read the sequel and they were kind of interested. What followed was a very strange experience where they shopped the manuscript around and promised me they could secure some offers. They had very little interest in the work itself. This sequel was vastly different to Maynard Trigg as it is today. The manuscript was called The Constable. It clocked in at around 35,000 uh, 35, words, a respectable novella slash novel. Tonally, the piece resembled something akin to a Stephen King fantasy story, I suppose. Uh, do you remember this at all, Ben? I don't know if I even would have told you about it. No, the, like, I've no, I'm trying to, like, is this... Yeah, no. It was like a hard-boiled 2015. Drama. I, think, I think 2015, I was, like, I 
like jumped off the shark as well. Yeah. I was like off yeah. doing my own things. That sounds about right. So um, that, that checks out. So Danielle, like how worried are you about my sanity at this point? <laughs> I mean, just a little. Just but... a little. That's good. That's good. Passingly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, hmm. have not talked about a lot of this before. So it's really interesting to go back to. Uh, Alright, I'm just going to read you a snippet from that book because again, I think it's it's worthy doting on briefly the how the tone has evolved over time because it'll be something we'll talk a bit about in part two. But it's this stuff is just like so weird to read because it doesn't read like it's me. Like I have such a strong voice and style now, but this stuff just it's so it honestly feels like reading someone else. It's so bizarre. Um, quote: Martha ducked and scooted with her back to the wall. He whirled and tried again. She kept moving along the stone, getting closer to the lamp that hung above the door the boy and the man had emerged from. It's a common missing. Uh, Martha's hip finally hit the doorframe and she spun, reaching up to unhook the lamp. It was made of heavy steel and still hissed with flame, the man wincing against the light as she swung it from its hook. Before she could turn, her jacket went tight over her shoulders and she was wrenched off her feet. He flung her against the door and knocked it from its hinges. Martha struck the wood, splinters slicing through her exposed stomach and chest. She hit the ground on her back and gasped for air. Her chest wouldn't move, her eyes were wide, and then her lungs filled in a gasp. As awareness washed in, she realized how much of a colossal fuck-up she'd made. She would have taken him down sober without much trouble, but her, but her head was hazy and she was far too slow. End quote. That is like... Do you, like, what the fuck was even happening in that? Like, the attribution <laughs> errors, like, the, the, the blocking's really weird. Yeah, it's just, it's not illegible, but it's not good, right? It's not the kind of thing that you would, that an agent would read and be like, yeah, let's publish that. I would hope. It's, it's, it's it was the kind of same, like, on the blocking, it's, it's, uh, the original Pokemon had, like, the same issues where, like, the action scenes were mostly incomprehensible. Um, yeah. <laughs> this is better, because you're, you're doing less, uh, wild movements of the body. <laughs> the yeah. Pokemon one. You're, you're reading it and you're like, wait, what is he doing? It's like, how, uh, like that, you know, he's like pivoting like three different joints in his body. It's like two To like throw yeah. someone across the room. It's like, uh, uh, just say he pushed judo? him. Yeah. And at least this is better where it's just like, you still use the word hip. That word triggers me like to no end. Because <laughs> you used it so many times in uh, the bloody Hendrix story. What was the expression? He. You flipped flipped them on his hip or something like there's a, there was a turn of phrase there was, there was some weird shit yeah then, like yeah and you're like what does that even mean <laughs> i don't fucking know man yeah i don't fucking and know. it's it's better in this one because you're at least using space you can see it evolving there's like you can <laughs> this is the it's the funny thing man it's like and we're, we're gonna it's go not back. just the yeah. two characters get teleported to like a street fighter to like, like a blank a, arena. Like flat arena yeah. And they just kind of duke it out, and then they go back to the real world. It's like a Pokemon match. Oh, it's, yeah, it's like a Pokemon match. We get teleported oh my to the God, battle. That's literally what I was, yeah. back. Ah. Maybe it's just a really good metaphor, oh, no. and it only took about what ten years to figure out. Damn. <laughs> Maybe I was on some shit. Should we go back? And, should we go back and watch? No, no, keep going. Just keep going. <laughs> Don't look back. <laughs> Gaze into the abyss, and the abyss gazes back. Oh, uh, it told you that metaphor was solid. Why'd you abandon it? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, hey, uh, this is actually pretty good. Like, shut up! What a horrific thought. <laughs> um, yeah, no, you're not wrong. Uh, 
I mean, this piece was pitched at a far more mature audience and it was trying to be gritty and approachable to things that don't necessarily go hand in hand. Um, one of the most curious artifacts of that process is that a lot of the ideas ended up in the Maynard Triggs stories today. Um, it was the first of my stories to feature Parker, um, who becomes more central as the story, stories go on. Um, and it was the first one to centralize this idea of endless pursuit as an allegory for someone's past, which is something that is like those four books are intrinsically about that. Um, it's not particularly good. The Constable isn't particularly good, but it was far closer to the quality um, that I would want to be approaching than the fan fiction. Um, which, speaking of, let's return to a little bit before. So about a year before The Constable, the fan fiction project started to fall apart. We couldn't make any money for pretty obvious reasons, so I couldn't really afford to pay people. Uh, deadlines weren't really met, artists found other paying work to do, and my will alone wasn't enough to get it across the line. Um, there was a handful of people who were very frustrated with me, uh, in one part because I'd wasted their time to an extent, but I think more importantly because they would believed in what I was trying to do and I'd let them down. Uh, my confidence didn't bear the fruits they expected, nor the ones that I kind of was hoping. Uh, despite all of my creative bravado, I failed to execute. And when we failed, we failed fucking hard. And we failed fast. Uh, there was a period of time where we took a break from making content altogether. Um, and I kind of did what I was hoping was some soul searching at the time, trying to decide what to do with my career. Um, but the result was like a lot of the people that worked in those original projects, like we just, those friendships and creative partnerships just like ended for the most part. Um, but I wouldn't let it die. Um, in true David fashion, I decided that I knew better than the universe. I could correct uh, this, this erroneous thing that had occurred. Um, and so I fought against it really hard. Um, instead of letting it die on the operating room, I called in a favor from a friend in the publishing industry. And we had 200 books made. And we sold all 200. Uh, they are out there in the world somewhere. These books still exist. If you have you one, trying to, please trying fucking, to call them back. Please contact me. I need to know if someone owns one of these. Um, uh, Wait, what is the book called? The Necessity of Hendrix. It. Okay. Um, the Necessity of Hendrix. Yeah. They're out there somewhere, people. Um, <laughs> I don't have a copy anymore. We're trying to get some reprints made. It's just been on the back burner because of book two coming out. But... Uh, when the podcast uh, season finale comes out, we're going to be releasing uh, copies of the book, so you can buy it if you want. Um, so if you want to find so, it, well, so you've you like in earnest released the book, yeah. And now, ironically, in pure irony, you're yeah. going to re-release the book Correct. completely unchanged. You just like at first it was like this is amazing, and now it's just like this is complete trash. It's illegible, but it's fascinating <laughs> garbage. Yeah. Um, so if you want to find out, you more need about to just put a massive preface on it. It's just like this book ain't great <laughs> oh the the foreword is like this is fucked like i've it's quite explicit and i've yeah it's it's rough um but it, yeah I, if, if you want to find out more about that um uh wherever you get your podcast just search for uh, that time i wrote a fan fiction um but people who who followed the podcast the video essays and like my voice and my creative output had bought these books um uh, that were ultimately a tribute to my own vanity um, it was this like desperate final attempt to disagree with the outcomes of this process. Um, I don't know how else to articulate it other than it. <sighs> Arrogance is the wrong word, but it's a thing that is like, I think a lot of people struggle with, which is accepting that something is over can be really hard to do. Um, and I refuse to let this thing go. 
Now, around that time, I was wrapping up my writing degree, and one morning I walked into a poetry tutorial. The cool kids of the writing class, and yes, there was a cool kids group, uh, sat in one corner, and because I was running late, because I'd just come directly from my job, I ended up at their table because there was a free chair. One of the young people in that group was wearing a white t-shirt and a waistcoat, and they read out a poem to the class. I left that room without speaking to the young man, but I knew he had something I hadn't seen ever in my entire waking life. That poem communicated something to me I didn't think I'd ever see. He didn't just have raw talent, but he had a strong, defined, refined voice. This guy knew his shit and cared about it. In the weeks later, I got to know this young man, Aaron Arasfari. <laughs> I pitched Aaron to write a show for the network, a sort of Night Vale-esque narrative set in a fantasy world. Uh, I won't talk about the concept because it's something we may eventually make, um, but it was essentially a story about... Uh, the concept was what if um, when you play like a Dungeons & Dragons game and you stop playing, what if the world continues to exist after you leave the table? And what would the people in that story have to say and what would their lives look like? Um, and it was a really interesting idea. And I, I think what we landed on was something that was unique, uniquely me and Aaron, which we'll get to when we talk about Maynard Trigg, because it was interesting and started somewhere accessible and then progressively got more and more weird and interesting. And I think that's probably like a hallmark of everything we've done together. Uh, we worked on a few concepts and even had a script for a first episode. During this work, Aaron learned that I had a novel of my own and he was eager to read it. He did so, and one evening, he and another of my, uh, of my colleagues from the class, uh, they basically sat me down for an intervention. Uh, you've got to remember at this time, this agent is shopping around a constable, right? So uh, they've read both and they're like, listen, you cannot let this get published as it is, they told me. It's just that bad, they explained. And for the first time in my young adult life, I actually listened to someone else. I listened to what these two people had to say about my work because I realized that one of the things that I'd been fucking up was not listening to other people. At the same time as this, I was in the process of breaking up with my girlfriend. Uh, it was a really complicated, messy breakup. Uh, we both worked at the same restaurant and I was interested in another girl who worked there. I'm not overly proud of anything I did at that time, uh, except for the fact that I was never cruel. I was cowardly, maybe, but I was never cruel or deliberately hurtful. But the upshot of this happening around the same time is that my attention was drawn in many, many directions. This will be a theme of my life moving forward. I wasn't sleeping a lot. Uh, I'd started a new job at a software company and slowly transitioned out of Sizzler. Um, I started drinking most, if not every night. Not on purpose, but there was no time to actually relax, so I drank and edited videos. I drank and edited podcasts. I drank and wrote novels. I drank and wrote assignments. It wasn't much I didn't do while I wasn't drinking. Uh, I was doing four days a week at this new job, and it was really dull data entry. This was good because it freed me to come home and be creative uh, and productive, but it had this weird, this weird result of I was holding my breath while I was at work and then breathing out when I got home, and that just meant that I wanted to relax even more. Um, I wrote a thousand words a day for a while, if not more, trying to craft something good off the back of this kind of, I guess, intervention discussion. Uh, eventually, Aaron sat me down. He told me in no uncertain terms that while two million word, the two million word manuscript had good elements, I'd kind of missed the point of the story I was trying to tell. The story had to be about Maynard, uh, about his journey from, from Carthage. Uh, so we'll 
we'll take a quick break and then talk a bit about how like the actual story came to be. But this point in my life um, is pretty fucking dark, and we'll get to some nice stuff in a minute. But this is sort of the this is like the the night is dark as before the dawn type moment for me. I think um, things were not good, uh, and we'll talk about that in a second. But we'll take a quick ad break, and when we come back, onto the good stuff. Not gonna lie, your Tumblr post that you were talking about mm-hmm. that. That totally sounds like something I probably would have posted too, like something similar. Like, I was the most arrogant person in college in 2011. Yep. Um, I just thought, but for different reasons though, like, I just thought I was like this righteous Christian. (laughs) (laughs) No, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So. Wow. um, Yeah, that that totally sounds like something I would write. Yeah, I just, I was weird. I probably would have read it. I was so sanctimonious. Now what we do here is not back-breaking, nor is it putting our minds to the hard employments of solving the world's problems. So, we come, as we must, to discuss these advertisements with you in order to put food on our plate and pay the talented people who make this program possible. Editing David here. This episode is brought to you by my novel that we're talking about, Maynard Trigg and the Creature Beneath the Veil, as well as the sequel that should be out by the time you're listening to this, Maynard Trigg and the City of Whispers. What you're about to hear is an excerpt of the fantastic Wayne June reading a snippet from the book. If you like what you hear and want to learn more and join the adventure, head to MaynardTrigg.com. That's MaynardTrigg.com. The walls and floor and window frames shuddered as a metal boot crossed the threshold and a figure stepped into the house. Beneath its heavy hood, Two red discs glowed where eyes should have been. The creature stopped moving. Its head snapped to face them, eyes radiating through the window. The boy will run, Mooney cried. Mooney pulled Maynard forward. They sprinted down the porch as the front door was thrown from its hinges. Maynard looked back and saw the creature standing in the doorway. The red discs flickered and went black and the seeker was enveloped in the darkness beyond the door. Invisible. Join the adventure at MaynardTrig.com and use code TRAILER10 at checkout for 10% off your first paperback order. Welcome back. So, at this time, Aaron basically sat me down and he was like, look, these you keep writing this, this manuscript, uh, and you just keep like telling more story, but you haven't found the story you're trying to tell yet. Uh, and he explained to me that he he reckoned the story should be about Maynard specifically, and about his journey from Carthage. Um, and so it was that one summer I took a single sentence from the two million word manuscript, and in ninety days wrote the entirety of Maynard Trigg and the Creature Beneath the Veil. I finished the book and sent it to Aaron. That same weekend I hopped on a plane to Melbourne. I met with Sandspants Radio, one of Australia's fastest-growing podcast networks, and sought some wisdom from their CEO, Joel Zammett. I also attended Gabriel Bergmoser's book launch, drank many pints with very talented people, but most importantly, spent a whole day with Zammett. We workshopped a new podcast format for art for artists, which would eventually become the show uh, in the future and lead it to its success. Uh, do you? Re- I'm trying to think, Ben. Do you remember when I got back and had the new idea for the show? Mm-hmm. Do you remember like yep. what it was before that? Yeah. Do you want to explain what it was before that? Good idea. 
well, before it, it was like just an hour-long ramble that had no plan and would have like two to three to five different topics, mm -hmm. seemingly randomly. Um, it was, yeah, I think we only did like ten episodes like that, and they were uh, all hot No, garbage. we did about 40. Yeah. Wow, okay. Yeah. yeah everything's just... A, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a lot bigger than I think. Um, yeah, yeah. But then after it, it was just like we need to actually have topics mm -hmm. <laughs> and cut it down and not ramble for an hour. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean that's probably the, the the best thing we did. Absolutely, it was very much just becoming just like every other podcast out there, where it's just well, every other bad podcast, where it's just two white dudes rambling for hours on end. Yeah. It, it was it was a really like I, I will never be more grateful for any like any meeting I've ever had in my entire life where he he goes Sam was like okay like what's the podcast and I explained to him the stuff that we talked about and he's like no but what's the what's the podcast and I was like well that was it and he's like well that what do you mean like that's you're just talking about stuff and it was such a moment for me where I was like oh fuck like I've never thought about it before and then we sat down and he was like and then he came up with the idea of um each each uh like piece of media we covered we could cover a specific aspect of it so it was like you could do like the world building of lord of the rings and then come back and do like the dialogue of lord of the rings and then you could come back and do this about and it what it did is he was like it means that you don't have to consume so much media every week you can actually return to stuff in a meaningful way and no one else is doing that kind of granularity um, of analysis and you seem like you'd be really good at it and so, like, when I, when I talk about this stuff, I'm like, he gets all the credit for that idea because it was completely his idea. And it changed the, it changed the podcast. Um, I remember we came back and we shot the first two or three. And it was so much better. It was so much better. <laughs> like, it was, it was like night and day, yeah. like, honestly. Yeah. Um, the, you go, like, the episode, like, the week before and then just the week after. And there was, like, there was no kind of like preparation or no different preparation mm -hmm. it was still mostly off the cuff um i don't think we did real research until like later but even just the different framing and like the time constraint just made it so much better yeah and it was a time constraint plus the subject constraint like when we talked about okay like the the you know the daredevil's corridor fight scene and it meant that we had this really specific thing that we had to extract something meaningful from, which it turned out something we're really fucking good at. Um, and like I, our dynamic benefits that kind of thing because I bring to bear like too much analysis and then you go, well, that's dumb, but this makes sense. And what about this? And it, I don't know, created a really good rhythm. Um, but it made me realize something. And this was for me like a pretty important trip in my life, I think. Um, I realized that I may not have to like hope or create this like facade that i was successful i realized that somewhere in a version of reality that could actually happen i might actually be able to make good art and good shows um only if i listened to people and only if i kind of extracted my own ego from the whole process and that realization i've never really had many epiphanies in my life but that was definitely what i would count as one of them um it was enough to keep the fire lit when working on the novel uh when i did eventually return to uh to Brisbane. Now, a few things happened at this time as well um, that are worthy of note. First of which, uh, a product manager at my job recognized something unique in me. It was still exactly unclear what he saw, 
whether it was my drive or my tenacity or my articulation or my problem solving or some other bullshit value. I don't know, not sure, but whatever it was, he wanted to, he wanted me to work on the product, uh, no more data entry. So I taught myself HTML, CSS, JavaScript. I taught myself design philosophy. And before long, I was working on the UX for the software alongside Cameron, the senior product manager. At exactly the same time, uh, my roommate and best friend uh, left without a word. Um, I went on a second trip to Melbourne, and when I got back, he was just gone with all of his belongings from the house we lived in. I haven't heard Most from him since. We still have that PC. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. Yeah, so still haven't heard from him, but that's a story for another day. Uh, now, think, yeah, uh, this was a weird period in my life because while this happened, I also moved in with my brother as a result of that. Uh, I was working a job that I had previously enjoyed, but like the step up to responsibility was cool, but also it, was, it increasingly made me miserable because my boss sucked a little bit. And my life became this game of like going through the motions, both in my professional and personal life. And when I say that, I, I don't know how else to explain this. And I'll give you a marker here, Ben, for the period when this was to see if you have any insight. But this was around the time when we started recording a lot of Let's Plays um, and just getting absolutely like shit-faced. Um, <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Yeah. I mean, I don't remember doing them, but I, I remember that. Same. Um, <laughs> remember that they happened. <laughs> I just remember how miserable I was. Like, like I'm pretty fucking depressed and anxious at the moment, but it was a different kind of... I know, that was a different kind of misery. Like, it's so hard to explain the... That was definitely like the the grind years where we just were doing so much. Yeah, well, we were making, we were putting out an, two episodes of, a, of Let's Play a day, a podcast a yeah. week, and I was putting out a video essay a fortnight. Um, yeah, like it was... Which is just like a crazy high volume of content. That was like when the, yeah, our, the afternoons that we would record every week, which was like one afternoon a week, and it would go from like four through to like ten. Yeah. So like almost like five, six hours of recording. Yeah on those afternoons which for me was like i wasn't really doing much else so it was fine yeah. it was, it was but... like five or six hours of just drinking basically yeah pretty much um yeah it was a oh, i just remember like how how much work i was doing and how unhappy i was i guess um and i don't remember the exact moment when i felt like i'd lost control but there was a moment when i realized that i didn't have control um and i'll talk about that in a second but like is that ever something that you that I, I don't know if everyone goes through that stuff danielle but like did you ever have that moment where you were like in that period of your life where like the rest of your life hadn't really started yet and you were just in that pit of some description yes <laughs> yes definitely <laughs> glad it's not just uh, me yeah um that was like around 2000 uh, let's see 2014 through 16 kind of mm -hmm. for me yeah so probably uh, the same time yeah. Then. Yeah. Oh wow. Same yeah. for me. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Um, good. Just let's all bond over our collective misery. Um, right. I'm. I'm gonna read you a quote from uh, the Sad Horse Show just to give you an idea of what this felt like. Uh, quote. Usually, when people ask how I'm doing, the Sad Horse Show is Bojack, by the way. Um, yeah, yeah, I picked up on everyone that. Else, I was say. Just for everyone else who doesn't know. Uh, quote. Usually, when people ask how I'm doing, the real answer is I'm doing shitty. But I can't say I'm doing shitty because I don't even have a good reason to be doing shitty. Shitty. So if I say I'm doing shitty, then they say, why? What's wrong? And I have to be like, 
I don't know, all of it. So instead, when people ask me how I'm doing, I usually say, I'm doing so great. But when this girl at the Jack in the Box asked me if I was having an awesome day, I thought, well, today I'm actually allowed to feel shitty. Today I have a good reason. So I said to her, well, well my mom, my mom died. died. And, she and she immediately burst into tears. Now I have to comfort her, which is annoying. And meanwhile, there's a line of people forming behind me who are all giving me these real judgy looks because I made the Jack in the Box girl cry. And she's bawling and she's saying, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, it's fine, it's fine. I mean, it's not fine, but you know, it's fine. And I would like to order a double Jack meal and I've kind of got somewhere to be, so maybe less with the crying and more with the frying, huh? <laughs> and the girl apologizes again and she offers me a free churro with my meal. And, and as I'm leaving, leaving, I think, I just got a free, just got churro, a free churro because, because my, my mom, mom died. died. No, no one, one ever tells, tells you when your mom, mom dies, you get a free churro. I read that quote from the Sad Horse Show to illustrate a point, which is that it's really hard when you're in these moments to realize that other people are feeling things that also aren't great. Uh, it's a great example of like, it's hard to empathize when you feel like shit because you assume that your grief or your pain it must be so much more significant than everyone else's. And I think at that time, that was definitely where I was at. Um, yeah, that, that period in my life got pretty dark. Uh, I'd refined my workflow for scripts and videos to where I could pump out a video essay in about three or four days. Uh, it was just a really shit situation to be living in. Uh, my brother didn't have air conditioning, so most weeks I was going to work, coming home, drinking, editing, and passing out in like 35 degree heat. Uh, I was also when I was skateboarding again, so I'd just get shit faced and skateboard and yeah, smashed up, <laughs> smashed up. And yeah, really, I got some scars from that that will, I will always have. Uh, and things were bad for like quite a long time. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Work went from being great to shitty really quickly. My boss was a huge bully. I didn't really have a social life. I could barely take care of myself and had no interest in self care or any realization that was something I should be paying attention to. Uh, it would take me many years later uh, and lots of therapy to realize this, but at the time, uh, it wasn't just that I was hugely depressed and anxious, it was also that I was realizing that was the thing that I would have to deal with for the rest of my life. So it was also the realization that um, I think I was trying to run away from feeling those things because it, if I acknowledged that I was feeling them, it meant that I'd have to recognize that's just a part of my brain and it's going to be there forever, and that's a scary thing to have to reconcile. Uh, so rather than confront this, I avoided feeling it at all. Uh, at some point, I don't remember when, uh, I decided enough was enough. Uh, I started running like a lot. Uh, I started eating better again slowly and I moved out of my brother's house. I got serious about podcasting and eventually one day picked up the, Ma uh, the Maynard Trigg manuscript again. And that was when the rest of my life started. I found not only that I enjoyed editing the book, but I was really good at it. Uh, and I say that in the sense that when I was sending it to Aaron, he was like, wow, you're making like changes that are actually impacting the script. Uh, and for the first time, the, the writing made sense, not just as a hobby, but it started to feel like it could be a career. Uh, what followed was ironically a period of prolonged excellence that often comes off the back of a period of prolonged misery. I was crushing it at work, then coming home and working on the novel. I got fit again. I even did fucking keto. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, Aaron and I continued uh, working through the editorial process to get the story up to speed and I was eventually able to show it to people. Now this was around the time that the podcast got incredibly successful as well and the book was starting to shape up nicely so things did eventually turn around even if at the time I didn't believe that would ever happen. Uh, I don't know if you remember this Ben but there was a there was a point where I sent the book 
to you. And this was like back when you weren't really reading that much. And I um, didn't read it. And you didn't read it. And then I remember sending it to Laura and Laura read it. And she was like, this is really yeah. fucking good. And I was like, oh, is it? Because no one had really, <laughs> no one whose opinion I trusted to be like, this is shit, had been like, well, because everyone else is just being nice, you know. But she was like, no, it's good. And like was able to describe why. And I was like, oh, maybe I'm onto something here. Um, I remember that very vividly. Uh, yeah, but it was funny. I never thought, I think at the time, like I, I was so wrapped up in my own like deep unhappiness that it just didn't occur to me that things would get better. Um, I don't know. It's hard to see out of that stuff. I think when you're in it, but uh, the manuscript came to a relative polish uh, and we'll talk a lot about the process in the next part um, when we hit the recording for that. And we'll kind of break down the story and go through it. Um, I'll try and get Aaron on board for that. Cause I think he'll have some insight as well. But as the manuscript came to a polish, I had this weird dilemma um, obviously the deal with the agent had fallen through because they couldn't get the constable published anywhere. And I basically mothballed the whole thing. Uh, so that avenue of publication was basically dead to me for a while. Uh, so I had this problem of like what to do with the book. I submitted it to a few agents, reached out to some contacts in the publishing industry for advice, but no one really had any insight. Um, I met with a few people, uh, really, really talented people in the, the Australian publishing industry. And they didn't really have any insight. They were like, look, it's a good book, but not really sure what you should do with it. Uh, and one morning at work, I explained to Cameron that I had written a novel. Uh, he went quiet in the way that only Cam can do and seemed deep in thought most of the day. That or he was ignoring me. It's hard to tell with Cam. That afternoon, he told me I should just sell it myself. And I looked at him like he was insane. Now, Cameron <laughs> had a background in e-commerce and he explained how relatively straightforward it would be to create a Shopify storefront and get the books made print to order. Turns out it really was quite straightforward. I did a few tests, a shitload of troubleshooting, and we had a viable process. We tried lots of different sizes and covers, and there are, there are still like a few prototype prints out there somewhere of like different dimensions and like weird cover. There was a, a green there's, cover there's for a, a while. Few, there's a few large books. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. I don't know if I have Ooh. Let me see if I have any. Hang on. I should have grabbed them before the recording. There's a few that have like horrendously bad print errors where it's just like a page will just be like shifted down halfway and you're like, that's not correct. Oh my God. See, I always look for that stuff when I'm yeah. reading actually. And nine times out of 10, I wish I would have kept a diary actually of all the stuff I find in books because- <laughs> weird print errors, since, yeah. Yeah, ever since I was like a teenager, I found it and it's like, it's if too want, late now. If you want print errors, the book, I don't have it. Oh, I do have it with me. This is a tangent. But if you want a novel of print errors, I can yeah, highly recommend oh. the book House of Leaves, which is just oh. print errors. Just print All errors? Intentional print errors. Are you it's plugging someone else's, need to read plugging someone else's book on this show about my book? <laughs> I am, yeah. <laughs> I mean, House of Leaves is kind of one of those books that I feel like I should have read at this point, but oh, I still haven't. Absolutely. So. It's a phenomenal book. <sighs> it's an experience. Yeah, I'm a pure, yeah. <laughs> okay, so this looks interesting. It's really... Oh, wait, we you're can... holding up to the wrong webcam. Oh, that's the, that, at least that's sorry, the real webcam. For the, for, the, for, the, for the viewer at home, and then I'll show it to you guys. Hang on. I don't know if you, it's really dark. I think, yeah, I think dark. I remember that one. Uh, yeah. The, what are those um, lights in the background? It's supposed to be like lights of like a sewer type thing. Oh, okay. Um, it's supposed to be like the Seeker in... Like the vault in that aside story with Deverell. Oh, okay. Um, 
hold that up. But that's the that's the big one as well, so it's less thick. But it's this one looks tiny for some reason because of the scale. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for comparison, oh, Danielle, can you hold up the um, the actual cover? I don't know. If we're gonna edit this, but yeah. Uh, so you can see like it's the same illustration. Um, yeah. Of the seeker, but yeah. But so just like again, like we, we went through so many processes um, of, of getting to that that version of it. Um, well, because I, th I remember you sent me that one, the the cover art for that, and I was like, eh, you can't yeah. really see anything. That's the th <laughs> it's kind of it, just uh, black. It, yeah, well, kind of. Also, the You're printing... like, that's the point. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> that's the point. That you sent me one of the, the circle. I'm like, yeah, this one's better. You should do yeah, this one. The hey. point is, well, you can't see, see dick. Sorry, Danielle. Well, I, I was gonna say the one you just showed us is kind of glossy. Where this one, like, it's uh. The texture is just different. I don't know what you would call this. Like, the, soft it's like a mat. Yeah. A mat. Okay. Yeah. Well, that was the other thing is is we, the printers kept printing it incorrectly. So this was supposed to be matte as well because the whole point of the mat is so that you can see the illustrations. But because <laughs> you just, they you don't just get reflections. Yeah, they kept yeah. printing it glossy, and I was like, "What the fuck, guys?" And they were like, "Oh, we don't do matte <laughs> covers in that size." And I was like, "Well, why is it an option then?" Um, <laughs> right. But the size that the book ended up being was was a size that. Um, I much prefer anyway because this is quite. Great. Make the next book as. This big, is like going to be riveting audio content, by the way. You're going to make the next <laughs> yeah. book as big as that poster. It'll be like five pages. I don't know. Okay. Oh wow, that that is a difference. Yeah. yeah, it is quite significant. So it's. I'll just show it to the camera, but it's quite. Yeah, one. It, it's like one of them looks like a novel. The other one just kind of looks like a magazine. I don't know what the, this thing just like doesn't. It doesn't feel. This has a weight as well. It's just yeah. This is so much better mm. in every. I think I made it. I think way. it makes a difference. I, yeah. I think I've said in one of your ads. It's just like new size. You can kill a man with this book. Yeah. Well, because <laughs> I insisted on the really expensive paper, because um, it gives it that weight and texture. And Cameron was like, "You're really hurting our profit margin." And I was like, "It must feel good, Cam. It must feel good." Um, but yeah. So like, I don't want to get too much into like the the labor like negotiations and contracts and the marketing and all that stuff. But the upshot is that we basically were able to sell the book um, through an imprint, maintain the copyright, but use a publication house to get it out there um, and maintain most of the profits ourselves, which was like pretty, pretty exciting. Um, now the book has been out for nearly a year and a half um, and people seem to really like it, which is something that I never, I didn't look, it's one of those things where you publish it and you expect it to be like, you think it's good. But it's hard to, until other people read it where you're like, is this anything? Like, I'm academically, I know, like, theory-wise, it should be good. Like, it's paced with this thing and that. But then when people pick it up and they read it and they get it, that's, like, a whole different thing. And that, that's the thing that's been the most surprising, I think, for me um, in this whole process is reading, like, reviews on Goodreads and stuff like that where just random people that don't know me or don't know our content read it and like it. And I'm like, wow, that's, it's just so foreign and so weird. Um, especially because it's something I'm proud of. I think with a lot of the, the praise that we'd gotten previously, particularly through the podcasts or through the videos and stuff, while it was like, while it felt like praise, it was like, oh, well, they just like the show. They don't like the create, like, I don't know. It's different. It's different when it's a thing that has nothing to do with me, I guess. It was, I think like with, with like the podcast, most of the praise was sort of just like, you guys are doing a really good job. And it's like, I appreciate it, but like, that's, it's almost like a, 
like someone like being going up to a toddler it's just like wow you're you're being so helpful when they're standing there like <laughs> holding a bucket of nails while everyone else is building the house yeah it's like, you're doing such a good job like that's almost what it felt like kind of yeah podcast it's a really get, good thought yeah because like most of the feedback you get people see you're a small channel and people see that you're just like you're just pumping out these podcasts and people are like oh, i'm gonna be encouraging to this person whereas like with a book people are just scathing it's like if the book is bad people will tell you yeah hmm. but they're, they're fun my favorite thing is when people give it they'll, they'll write like a three-star review and they'll just it'll be but it'll be the nicest they'll be like this i fucking love this book it's amazing this is so good and i'm like why'd you give it three stars <laughs> <laughs> happens a lot i'm like could you not if you think it's five give it five like what three out of five is <laughs> above average yeah um no you're absolutely right though ben and i think the other thing is like if you ask those people the follow-up question of why why do you think we're doing a good job? They pr maybe wouldn't have a compelling answer. Mm, yeah, it's just kind of um, like... Yeah, whereas, just, like, when people write book job. reviews, like, they tend to write, like, meaningful shit. Um, so that's mm -hmm. been, yeah, a really weird experience for me. Um, and it's part of why I wanted to go through, like, the journey of how this thing got created. Because the whole point of the show is us, like, delving pretty deep into, like, a lot of media and things that we want to break apart and understand better. And it behooves me to not do that with my own stuff and go back and reflect on some of this. I think... When I was putting the script together, I originally had something in there when I was talking about that transition from when things were really bad to when things got better slowly. And I had something in there about like, uh, this is like how I got there, but it kind of felt like a lie because I don't know why I'd like, I don't know how I went from that place to, to where things were slightly better. It just happened. And like, I, I didn't want to, didn't want to create this narrative of like, and then I did this, this and that, and I was suddenly happier again. Like it, do you know what like i think i was just less miserable <laughs> i don't know that i ever got happy um i don't know if that's something that i'm ever gonna like approach but in the act of going through and reflecting on that person i used to be the one thing i can definitely say for sure is that the reason this book exists is the same reason that i still make content even though i don't necessarily i'm proud of art for artists and we did like something really cool for a really really long time and it got to the point at the end where it was a really compelling show but I think it was getting to the point where we were no longer, I think we were getting more out of it than the people we were making it for. Um, and that, yeah, like, as an entertainer, it, like, that's not necessarily good. Because it started when we were both pretty different people. Mm. And we kept doing it through that really rough point that we both sort of had. And it we came out the other end and we was, like, still doing it. And it was always, like, sort of a, funny talking point of just like you know back in the dark ages which was, then was like two years ago mm -hmm. but it felt like this progression and i guess now it's kind of like well you know we got through that rough you know we went through that trough and we came out the other side yeah and we actually kind of did something pretty i guess pretty significant with the whole thing yeah and you kind of just be like I'm okay with dropping it now because we did it for so goddamn yeah, long. Yeah, it's done. Like, it feels yeah, finished. It's, yeah, it's like it's finished. Yeah. And when did you start it again? Uh, 2013, 2011? Mm. Uh, okay, no, it was definitely... Uh, 2011? No, 2013, sorry. Yeah. 2013, yeah. Yeah. Um, which feels like a lifetime ago. Um, <laughs> yep. It, <does. laughs> it kind of was. But, I mean, yeah. I think it's interesting because it was a... Sh I don't want to, like... It, in some ways, it probably kept me alive, the show, like quite literally, like it was something that I had to turn up to each week, um, 
which is like a scary thought I've had before where like I know in that period of my life like it probably yeah probably it probably literally kept me alive like having that thing to do every week um yeah it was definitely like those Thursdays was just like you know we go do the things on Thursdays yeah and it was always there and yeah in like like now having that it's always there is like just way too much <laughs> well we don't need it because we're like, adults who have like other things like other exactly mechanisms but, and, but like back like, then where it's like you don't really have much going on apart from just like go to university go to work yeah. it's like having that always there is just like oh it's actually you can kind of look forward to it yeah yeah exactly and that's sort of i guess if if there was any thought i have off the back of transitioning from what we were doing to what we're going to be doing in the future like my thought is like how incredibly grateful I am to have been able to do that for as long as we did. But also like, I was the one that kept, like we kept doing it. So that's like, I'm like, I'm grateful, but also like we made that happen and that's an achievement in and of itself. Um, and yeah, it's a, it's a really complicated thing to think back and look at. Um, <laughs> what we're going to be doing next episode is talking through the first book. So we'll break it down into kind of story chunks. Um, I'm going to get you guys to, get your insights into it. Um, I'll talk a bit about the process of creating it. Aaron will talk a bit about the editing process. Um, and hopefully it'll be a bit of a recap and a refresher before book two. Uh, and then part three will be the same thing, but for, for book two, when that drops, um, we'll try and maybe publish that two or three weeks after the book comes out. So everyone has time to read it. Um, it should be pretty exciting. Did you guys have any um, closing thoughts before we wrap up this one? Oh, it's been a wild ride. I think yeah. every time we do these kind of retrospectives, it's always just like, this shit is crazy. <laughs> it's such a weird, just like slice. And it, it, it kind of creates like a history that, you know, like you get older and it's, it's always going to be there because it's yeah. on the internet and it's, it's going to be weird being an adult <laughs> with this <laughs> five, five, yeah. six, seven year running podcast when you were basically a teenager. Like that's going to be a weird thing to have. I don't yeah. think many people, well, I mean, like everyone's done a podcast, but I don't think it's like, not everyone has kind of done it for that long. Yeah. And also our show wasn't really about us. So there's this aspect of like, no. it, it's us talking about stuff, but it, it's, it's funny even looking back at it now, like I look back at shows from last year um, and I think about like where I was living and the relationship I was in and all that sort of thing. And even looking back at that, while we're talking about like fucking I don't know, some movie or something. And I'm like, what was I going through at that point in time? Like what was happening behind the scenes? So, so weird. It's so weird to be able to do that. It's, it's a strange thing, especially as you get older, reflecting on those moments of your life. Like for me, it feels almost surreal. Uh, when I look back at just any time, like as a teenager in college. So I think this is kind of cool to see where you were. And how to see where you are now. <laughs> yeah. And I, it's just, it's, it's, it, it's a fun exercise, somewhat miserable at times, but you know. Yeah. But it's cool. I like to think that it's cathartic, but um, we'll see how the rest of my yeah. day goes as to whether or not that's true. <laughs> <laughs> it could just end up being depressing. I don't know. Um, yeah, it's, it's, um, yeah, it's really weird. Uh, yeah, I feel very grateful that we have the, the opportunity to look back at it uh but yeah there are some stuff there are some things that i'm not very proud of um but i suppose that's the that's the work of growing up i guess it's what we talked a lot about last time um about Druckmann and things like like he 
he's grown and changed to what extent and to how much he needs to arguable, but at least he's doing the work. Um, and I think that's the one mm. thing that, that we definitely did. Um, so I'm really excited to, I, I think next, next part's going to be really fun. Um, cause I haven't really like, I've talked to both of you about the book, but I haven't really like, we haven't really talked about it. Um, yeah. which I'm very excited to do. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, Danielle, do you have any, uh, pluggables? Um, yeah, I guess, uh, visit levelstory.net, uh, for my magazine about a story in video games. I just have a new issue out about The Last of Us, so, so be sure to check that out. David's in I'm it. In it. Uh, he wrote a piece. I wrote a very polarizing very article, as I always do. <laughs> True, but it was a good polarizing article. There you go. So if you want to, <laughs> if you want to fight me about The Last of Us, you can go and do that. <laughs> it, it actually had content. Like, let me just like say just one moment that like a lot of people, your article is defending a character who people just kind of jump on and don't really give like good credible reasons but your article was actually like it's similar to those arguments but it's different i don't know how i, I don't want to say anything else mm -hmm. but it's good there you go go check that out yeah. uh there it was one of the big it's our biggest issue so far right yeah it's 72 pages yeah. so it's it's a it's a hefty one it's, it's i'm surprised one, yeah. i thought it would be 50 pages yeah <laughs> i can't believe yeah. <laughs> everyone did amazing yeah um yeah. shout out to everyone that worked on it definitely go check it out um yeah cool uh, i don't think there's anything else i wanted to plug aside from obviously like the the book itself um but i'm sure there'll be a mid-roll ad in there somewhere um we're sort of in between projects at the moment but if you want to follow the articles we're writing zeroindent.com is what's housing a lot of the stuff that we'll be making in the future. Uh, if you like this podcast, um, do the things you do with podcasts, wherever you find it, give it a rating, tell someone about it. You guys know the drill. Um, tell one person who you think would enjoy it. Tell one person who you think would enjoy this. Send it to them. Bully them into listening to it. That's the best way to get the word out. Um, otherwise, yeah, thanks for <laughs> coming on this journey with me, you two. Um, sorry it couldn't have been more pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> can only get better from here it can only get better from here it calls for the doing of great deeds as with all things worth doing we are but a sum of our actions this blinking light in front of me means my time is up I remain here reaching to you across the vastness of oceans awaiting on our next meeting good night Frank <laughs>